Please turn in your Bibles to James chapter 5, if you have not already. James chapter 5, it's a blessing to be here and to bring God's Word to you and to sit under the authority of God's Word. I like to use that phrase, that, that was a phrase I, I don't think I was unfamiliar with before seminary, but, but um, the Lord brought it home to me that we as God's people are to sit under the authority of God's Word because it is the Word of God. And so we want to do that as we read God's Word and as we um, consider it and how it applies to our lives this morning. We are in chapter 5. We'll pick up in verse 7 and just want to say a few words about where we are in the book of James. Um, James, of course, is very practical. I say that every time I stand before you and preach from James because it is so applicable to our, our lives as believers. Um, we need it. Um, in the previous text, I think it was back in March when, when we looked at that, uh, the first six verses of chapter 5, um, there was condemnation for the rich, very strong, uh, stern language to those who were oppressing the poor. They, these these uh, landowners had withheld wages and basically uh, lined their pockets, fattened their hearts, the, tac- the text says, um, at the expense of, of those um, believers who were being oppressed. And so um, here James turns his attention from the oppressors to the oppressed and seeks to give them hope in the midst of their trials. He goes from warning against the rich to giving comfort and encouragement and admonition to the poor, to those suffering under trials. He encourages them to patient endurance in their time of waiting, in their time of wrestling with their trials. Here um, in this final chapter, James uh, kind of goes back, circles back and touches on something that he introduced his whole epistle with, and that is uh, being steadfast under trials. And so um, we, we get another dose of it because we need it. Now, I will say that I did not choose this text to preach to mothers because of their shortness of patience. Um, We all need patience. Uh, Mothers have um, probably more opportunities to show patience than than fathers, but um, we all need God's word. And so I trust the Lord will bless his word to us this morning. Let's pray and then let's read our text. Lord God, we need you and we need your word. Um, It is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Lord, it is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. It discerns what we need in our hearts. So, Lord, I pray that this morning your word would go in cutting and come out cutting. Lord, that it would would expose our hearts. Lord, we need this. We, We wrestle in our times of trial. So, Lord, give us from your word the things that we need. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. James 5, beginning with verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. 
Above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Amen. And we praise God that he has spoken to us in his holy and inerrant word. Waiting. Waiting is not something we like to do. It's hard. Perhaps you are here waiting, waiting to hear about a job, maybe. Maybe you're waiting to hear the results of a medical test. Maybe you're waiting for a child to be born, or maybe waiting for a child to be conceived, or waiting for a child to learn to read, or maybe waiting for a child to learn, turn three, so you're out of the terrible twos. Maybe you're waiting for a wayward child to come back home, to come back to God. Perhaps you're weary with being single and you're waiting for a spouse. Perhaps you're waiting for a broken relationship to be restored. Or you're waiting for the end of loneliness or the end of anxiety that's crippling you. Waiting is hard. One author has said, waiting is our destiny. As creatures who cannot by themselves bring about what they hope for, we wait in darkness for a flame we cannot light. We wait in fear for a happy, happy ending that we cannot write. We wait for a not yet that feels like a not ever. Waiting is the hardest work of hope. So whatever you're waiting for, whatever trial you're in, God calls you and I to patient endurance. I want us to look at this text under four headings. You'll see them in the insert in your bulletin. Three commands form the first three points and then a reason for the fourth point. James calls us to be patient, to stand firm, to speak truth. And then he gives us the reason because the Lord is coming. Remember the connection that, that we pointed out earlier about this chapter and this text with the opening verses of James. And really it's a theme that, that is kind of overarching in a sense, this idea of steadfastness, this idea of enduring in trials. God calls us. He's speaking to Christians here that are suffering. He's speaking to you and I in our time of waiting. And the first thing he tells us is to be patient. Now we tell our children that a lot because children are naturally impatient. And to be honest, I am as well in the midst of my struggle and trials. It's a simple, straightforward command that should be easy, right? Well, not necessarily, because it's hard. The, the text where we picked it up in verse 7 maybe seems a little abrupt. Be patient. James is, is, is kind of notorious for his abruptness and, and his straightforward uh, writing to us. But remember, it's in the context of what we said at the beginning, in the context of those that are suffering, those that have suffered injustice, those who have, have really been robbed of things that were really theirs, the wages that they should have received. James is addressing those who were waiting and the wages, for, they were waiting for justice and for the wages that were owed to them. We might think, well, he would be a little softer if he knew my circumstances. Well, he knew the circumstances of his readers and he repeats this. What is this patience that James is calling us to? Well, one commentator has described patience like this, the self-restraint, which does not hastily retaliate against a wrong. We could also say it's that character quality of being able to wait for circumstances to change despite the pain or frustration involved in the waiting. 
The old Puritan Thomas Manton has said that patience is enduring afflictions without murmuring and injuries without revenge. He goes on to say that, again, you'll have to appreciate this Puritan language. It's easier, it is easier, he says, in a calm and sedate condition to discourse of patience than to exercise it in the time of trial. In other words, it's much easier to talk about patience when things are going well than it is to really have it when things are going rough. Isn't that the truth? God knew we needed reminded of that. In fact, in, in, the, in verses 7 and 8, there's three references and commands, either a command to patience or, or saying, hey, look at this, this example of patience. We're, con- we're told to consider the example of patience in the farmer. Now, a farmer is willing to wait. We live in a, in a hurried-up world, and, and we want things now. And if we sit, have to sit for more than two minutes in the, in the drive through line at Chick-fil-A, we think, they need to get their act together because I've got places to go and things to do. But the farmer is willing to wait. That's part of what he does. Now, if you're a gardener, you can appreciate this. If you've ever planted anything, you know the value of waiting. You know that you cannot plant a tomato plant today and expect to have a BLT with those tomatoes tomorrow. It takes time. We have to be willing to tend that, that plant, to care for it, to weed it, to fertilize it, and eagerly await the day for those tomatoes to ripen. In the same vein, a farmer expends great energy and expense to bring his crop to fruition, to bring it to harvest. He, he spends money and equipment and fuel, seed, fertilizer. He prays for rain or, or irrigates the crop, whatever the case may be. And then he waits. Even if he wishes he could speed the process of the, of the sprout becoming a blade and then a stalk and then the ear of corn or the head of wheat, even if he wants to speed that up, he knows he can't. He has to wait. But it's an active waiting. He continues to do the things he does because of the joy of the harvest. Because for the farmer, the profitability of the harvest. We wait for tomatoes to grow in the garden because of the great joy we receive when we get to pick them and eat them and enjoy them. And the farmer in the, in the rewards for his efforts. And there's a couple of things I think we can learn from the farmer or the gardener. First, there is an end to the waiting. There is a, there is a goal. There is, a, there is a, something at the end that we're waiting for. And secondly, there's, there is the fruit in the waiting. Now, this is where it gets kind of tough. Because often in our trials, we feel like they will never end. Like, like the quote that I read you earlier. It, it feels like it it's, will never end. And, and I'm very guilty of that when I'm in my a trial, no matter how small it is. It seems like it will never end. But there is an end to it. We are often left wondering when it will end, but rest assured it will end. Often I have people encourage me or hear Christians encourage one another saying, this too shall pass, as the scripture often talks about the passage of time and the passage of events in God's sovereign purposes, and it came to pass. And our trials, too, shall pass. But we're told to wait, and this is where it gets tough. We're told to wait until the coming of the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean necessarily that every one of your trials will last all your life, although sometimes your trials do. Think of the Apostle Paul, his thorn in the flesh. He prayed three times that God would remove it, and he said, the answer was, my grace is sufficient for you. It wasn't, 
that God would remove it, but God would give the grace. And he will for you and me as well. God will give us what we need, and he will give us what we need to grow in Christ's likeness. That might be a short trial, or it might be a long, enduring trial. Trials, however, are part of our earthly existence, and we should not be surprised when they come. James has already told us not to be surprised when they come. Our trials should drive us to our knees and to God. And they should remind us that this earth is not our home, that we're just passing through, that this is not the end. The end is yet. The end is being home forever with Christ. Now, we're not just waiting for the end of our trials. We are ultimately waiting for the end of all trials, for the end of all sin, the end of all temptation, the end of all sickness and disease. When we are at home with the Lord, we are ultimately waiting for Christ to return. Our suffering here, the trial that you're enduring now is, is part of your existence upon this earth. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't cry out in the midst of trouble. We see examples of that. We sang an example of that from Psalm 31 just this morning. We know that our trials will ultimately end. But we need to be also reminded that there's fruit in the waiting. And I think that's what James wants us to see in helping us look at the farmer in his harvest. Think of the joy for a farmer in viewing a field of grain as it is approaching harvest time. But just as real as these harvests are, we can be encouraged and assured that there will be a precious and pleasant harvest from our trials here upon this earth. So why are we not that way with God's purposes? When we see that, that tomato ripening on the vine, we think, oh, it's getting close. It's getting close. And we should think in a similar way with our trials here, knowing that God is forming us. God is shaping us. God is making us more Christ-like. And he is preparing us to be at home with him. Turn with me, if you will, to Romans 5. Just a, a quick um, reference that I think is so helpful. Romans 5, begin, uh, chapter, or verse 3 through 5. I, I like to occasionally ask you to turn to your, uh, in your Bibles to something else. It's, it's good for us to see God's word upon the page or upon your screen if you're so inclined. Listen to God's word from Romans 5, 3. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. God is at work in our trials. I had the privilege of, of sharing with somebody um, just between the services and uh, about uh, somebody that was looking for a job. And I, I reminded him, and, and the Lord brought it to me as well. You know, we don't know what God is doing, but God is doing. God is doing something in every circumstance. If you believe Romans 8.28, you've got to believe that. That God is doing. God is at work. Proverbs, I'm sorry, Psalm 27.14 calls us to wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. And that leads us to our second point. The second command that James gives us to stand firm. The text phrases it like this. Establish your hearts. 
What does it mean to establish your hearts? Well, it means to set it fast, to turn resolutely in a certain direction. This is a word that, that was used about Jesus in Luke uh, 9, where it says he set his face toward Jerusalem. What was Jesus doing? It wasn't just the direction of his body. It was the direction of his mind. He knew it was time for him to fulfill the work that he came to do. He set his face toward Jerusalem to go accomplish what he came to do to pay for our sins. It's that idea of resolve. It's that idea of steadfastness, that, that word that James likes so well. He has talked about that back in verse uh, chapter 1, and, and he warned against double-mindedness. He said the double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. And then he contrasts that with the one who is steadfast, the one that's single-minded in their purpose and devotion to God. We talked about steadfast as we looked at that first chapter, steadfastness being a fixed direction and a firmness of purpose. That is what we're called to in the midst of trials. That is what we're called to in the midst of waiting. That is what we're called to in those dark places that seem like they'll never end is have that fixed direction upon God and a firmness of purpose, seeking to be a faithful follower of Christ in the midst of trials. So establish your hearts. To do so is to seek to be steadfast. And James tells us in verse 9, as he has in verse 8, he points to the return of the Lord. This, this is just a thread that just is woven all the way through this text about pointing us to the return of the Lord. It should give us hope. It should make us steadfast. I look across this audience and I see young and I see old folks and I see, I, I recognize that, that our existence upon this earth may seem long from our understanding, our perspective, but think about it, whether we live 70, 80, 90, even 100 years, it's just a blip on the radar of eternity. The world is not our home. Moses spoke of this in Psalm 90. He said, you return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night. This life consumes us right now, but it is just a blip on the radar. It's just a speck on the map of God's time, of God's eternity, and what he has planned for us, his children. Second Peter reminds us of this also. says, with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. God is patient. He is long-suffering, and he waits. He waits to be gracious to us. We think about our waiting, but you know what? God waits. God waits to show us grace, to be gracious to us. I, I hope you're familiar with Isaiah 30, verse 18. If you're not, read it, memorize it, meditate upon it, make it your own. It says, therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. And therefore, he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. And as he has, as James has, um, in the opening verses, given us an example, he gives us two more examples on this idea of steadfastness and enduring trials. Those are the prophets and, and Job. Now, the prophets were unique individuals in redemptive history. They lived lives that were blessed in, in many ways. They enjoyed 
a certain status, if you will, as God's spokesman to the people of God. But if we look at their existence, I'm not sure we would use the word blessed as the text talks about them. It says they were, they were blessed in, in their endurance and they uh, were blessed in their uh, suffering. It says they, they remained, they were blessed, those who stayed steadfast. But we look at their experience and we think, ah, it doesn't sound too blessed because Isaiah, tradition tells us, was sawn asunder. Micah was imprisoned. Jonah found himself in the belly of the whale or the great fish. And, and perhaps none suffered more than Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. He was ridiculed, placed in stocks, forced into hiding for his own protection, accused of being a traitor for proclaiming God's judgment that was coming against Jerusalem. He was thrown in a pit to die, and then he was eventually pulled out, then imprisoned again, and then carried off to Egypt, finally, against his will. Many of the prophets proclaimed a message that was mostly ignored by the people of God. So they had to feel, from a man, from man's perspective, as unsuccessful. Yet they were proclaiming God's word. And yet they remained steadfast. They stood firm. Think about Job, a man who endured sore trials. He, he was originally a man of influence. He sat at the gate. He judged the people. He was a wealthy man. He was blessed with flocks and herds and children. But he lost it. He lost everything except his wife who advised him to curse God and die. His friends, we say that quote unquote, his friends continually told him that he must be guilty of some sin to bring all these troubles upon himself. And, but scripture tells us that he remained steadfast. He endured. He did not sin with his lips or charge God foolishly. He proclaimed Though he slay me, I will hope in him. These men, even, even Job, um, God said he was blameless. That doesn't mean he was perfect or, or without fault. It means that he maintained his integrity. He maintained his faith in God. But he wrestled, as, as did the prophets. They, they, they were not afraid to cry out in their dark hours to say, God, where are you? You read through the, the pages of Job and you see a man that's wrestling with the great pain that he is suffering. They were willing to take those struggles to God. They held on in the long, dark night of the soul. And as they held on, they grew. They grew in their faith. As New Covenant believers, we would say that they were conformed to the image of Christ. We're called to look to the prophets, to look to Job. And in the face of our trials, we're called to establish our hearts, to have that firmness of direction and intention that helps us persevere when the going gets tough. James goes on and gives us more admonition. He says that we should thirdly speak truth. Now, you might look at this text and say, well, where does it say that? Or where does it say not to lie? And I wrestled with how to phrase this because James is definitely talking about our speech. And... In the midst of trials, our tongue can get us into trouble. One commentator has said, a tight corner and loose lips go together. And I think there's some real truth to that because he, he tells us not to grumble. Actually, he tells us two things. He says, don't grumble and don't swear. Don't grumble. Let me ask you, what are you doing when you grumble? Now, you don't have to answer me aloud. But, but what are you saying you might say, well, I'm, I'm complaining about my circumstances. Well, 
that's not incorrect. But what are you saying? What does grumbling say about God? I'll leave that there for you. And then I'll just take you back to the book of Numbers to the chief grumblers in Scripture, at least certainly as a group of people in the Old Testament. The Israelites in the wilderness grumbled. And you read through the book of Numbers, and it seems like all the time they're finding something to complain about. Now, it's not that their, their lot was easy. You know, the sun was hot. They were hungry at times. They were thirsty at times. Yet they grumbled. What were they doing? What were they saying? They were discontent with God's provision for them. They questioned God's goodness and faithfulness. God had, had miraculously brought them out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, out of the slavery of their taskmasters. And what did they do? They said, we want to go back to Egypt. It was better back then where we had it then. How soon do we forget? They were basically saying, God doesn't care. God doesn't hear, he doesn't remember, he doesn't know or care what we're going through here in the wilderness. And is that not what we're doing when we grumble and complain about God's provision for us? One of my favorite verses of scripture is Exodus 2, 24 and 25. And it's speaking about how the Israelites were crying out in their time of slavery. And God responded to that plight. And it says, their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. God heard, he remembered, he saw, and he knew. Was it any news to him? No. He knew it all along, but he knew their plight. He heard their cry, and he remembered them in Egypt. God knew their need and he rescued them. And we are called to trust in God's goodness even when things are dark and we cannot see the way clearly. We are called to speak truth about God to ourselves and to others. Verse 9 reminds us not to grumble to others. And I think it's so easy in our times of discontent for that discontent to spill over in how we interact with others. We often grumble against one another because we are not completely resting in God's goodness to us. My college choir director uh, many years ago had an interesting way of telling us, the choir members, how to, that we should smile as we sing. He would say, if you're happy, tell your face. And I say to you and me, if you believe that God is good, then make your speech reflect that trust in God's goodness. Secondly, he tells us under this heading of speak truth, he says, don't swear. Now, I think there's many applications to this. Um, but think about swearing is using God's name in vain. It's using God's name casually and lightly in an unholy way. Scripture tells us that God is holy, holy, holy. And if we use God's name in a careless and reckless way, we are saying something that's untrue about God. Because God is so holy, we should revere him. And his name is one of the ways in which he reveals himself. So we should revere his name. But I think there's more to be said about this. It's more than just pointing um, about guarding our speech against cursing. But I think we need to note that it's not saying we should not take lawful oaths. That's not what this text is saying. Because sometimes we're called upon to do that. 
but rather it warns us from taking oaths based upon things that might allow us to actually be untruthful. This language that James uses is very similar to what the Lord Jesus used on, in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, where he spoke very similar words. And he, in, in that culture, there were ways of, of basically kind of sidestepping the truth and, and speaking an oath based upon some created thing and then making it less than binding. What, what James is saying here is saying, be truthful. Let your yes be yes and let your no be no. You don't have to always take an oath to tell the truth. We should be people that love the truth because God is a God of truth. So we must speak truth about God's character. We must speak truth about God's name. And we should always seek to be those who keep our vows. Let our yes be yes and your no, no. Finally and, and briefly, we want to see that the reason for all this, as we keep kind of seeing bits and pieces of, is that the Lord is coming. That's, that's a theme that is woven throughout this text. We have references to Christ's return. And there's two things I think we need to see about Christ's return. Is that he's coming as a judge, and he's coming as a savior. Look at verse 9 with me again. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Now, too often, people in the, of, of our age and even within the church think about God's judgment as some far-off event. And it's true that James wrote this text 2,000 years ago, and he said judgment is near. And you know what? It's that much nearer today. And that's what we need to think about. And in the grand scheme of God's redemptive history, we need to realize that Christ's return is the next big event. And it could be today. Christ is returning. He's coming to judge the quick and the dead, as the Apostles' Creed says. If you are in Christ, you have that great assurance of knowing that Christ has borne the penalty for your sin. And you can face your judge and maker unafraid because of Christ's work for you, for his people upon the cross. But for those outside of Christ, you need to recognize that you will face your judge and maker in fear if you have not made your, if you have not cried out in repentance and faith and come to Christ. The day of the Lord will come like a thief, Second Peter tells us. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burnt up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on them, on it, will be exposed. Christ is coming, and his judgment is near. It is even at the door, the text tells us. Think about when you're preparing for company and maybe you haven't prepared as well as you should and you're, and you're, 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 you're rushing around to get the dishes done or the floor vacuumed and, and one of the children announces, oh, they're here. And you're thinking, oh, maybe they'll just sit in the car for five minutes while I finish the vacuuming. And then they'll say, they're at the door. And what do you, have, what do, you do? You put away whatever you're doing and you greet them and you smile and you pretend like everything's nice. But on the day of judgment, there will be no pretending. On the day of God's wrath and judgment, there is no pretending. 
Everything will be laid bare. And if you are not right with God, if you have not repented of your sins and come to faith, come to Christ in faith, you will be judged on that day. Christ is coming as a judge, but He's coming as a Savior, as a Lord to those that know Him. And that should bring us much comfort and joy. That should be our hope in the midst of trials. It should help us to remain steadfast. It should remind us that even trials that remain with us for months or years or decades or even a lifetime are just a passing affliction. Hebrews 10 tells us, Therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, that you may receive what is promised for yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. That is our hope, saints of God. Our hope is in the return of Christ. And yes, we're here and we're in the midst of our trials and they seem to last forever. But we have a home in heaven, a home in glory with our risen Savior. So my question for you is, how will you meet him? Will you meet him as your Lord and Savior? Or will you meet him as your judge? As I look out over this congregation, and I could say the same thing about the morning, the, the first service. I know many of you have suffered. I know, I know some of you have lost spouses. Some of you have lost children. You have, you have endured disease and sickness. And these things are dark. These things are challenging. So what do we do? What do we do in the trials? What do we do in the waiting? Well, I trust that, that you will think about that example that we were given of the farmer. The farmer doesn't just plant seeds and then go on a six-month vacation and come back and expect the harvest to be great. That would be ridiculous. He does something while he waits. And so you and I are called to active waiting. We're called to do things. Not do things to earn our salvation, but do things to build our faith in the midst of trials. It, it talks in there about the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. It needs, that fruit needs those early and late rains. There's things that we need in the midst of our trial when we're waiting for that precious fruit of the harvest that we talked about that is yet to come in glory. There's things that we need. There's things that we can do. So hopefully here's some practical things as we close. First of all, we've said it again and again. I want to say it one more time. Anticipate his promised return. Anticipate the return of the Lord. Saints of God, if you're here in the midst of suffering and trials, think about Christ's return. That is our hope. Secondly, acquaint yourself with his promises. Well, how do you do that? They're right here, folks. Read God's word. Meditate upon God's word. Memorize God's word. Sit under the preaching of God's word as you are here this morning and you doing so via live stream. It's so vitally important. We need it just like the early and late rains. We need these things to help us grow. Acquaint yourself with God's promises. Thirdly, acknowledge his character. We're, we're told of, of two character traits of the Lord. The Lord is compassionate and merciful, it says in verse 11. And as we, as we learn more about God, as we learn more about his character, we can appeal to that in our prayers. 
I, I mentioned about crying out and, and, in a sense, wrestling with God in the midst of our trials. You read the Psalms and, and you, see, you see a man who, who is stripped bare of, of, of hope, in, it seems like, yet his hope is in God. His, there's, there's nothing in which he can hope. And sometimes, folks, that's where God needs us to be. Where there's nothing on this earth that we can grab onto that we just cry out to God and say, God, if you don't save me, I'm sunk. I'm going under. And the psalmist gives us language for that. So pray the psalms. Acknowledge his character. Fourthly, embrace the fellowship of other believers. Oh, we need God's people. We need to, we, we are not called to be lone rangers. We are called to exist in community with others. Um, I have been so encouraged over the last few weeks by just little snippets that people have said. Our community group has met together and, and, and folks have said things that were just like a shot in the arm. Just, just something that I needed to, to remind me that, that, I, that I'm not just flailing around in the dark. That, that God is working his purposes in whatever it is that we face. Sometimes... We need God's people to help us recognize that our troubles are not nearly as bad as other people's. I've also been in situations recently where I've had people share with me the deep hurt and the deep struggles that they're going through. And I think, Wegener, you've got it easy. It, it just, we, we need to recognize that God is at work and we need other people. Embrace the fellowship of other believers. Let me start over from the top in case you're writing this down. Anticipate his promised return. Acquaint yourself with his promises. Acknowledge his character. And I know these don't all start with A. Embrace the fellowship of other believers. And finally, educate yourself. Learn from other Christians, whether living or dead. You can read biographies of those from ages past. Learn from other Christians of how they grew in their faith. Johnny Erickson Tata is someone that amazes me. Because she has so, shown great faith in the Lord in the midst of severe trials that have lasted nearly all her life. And, and I, I, just, I just watched a YouTube. Uh, Daryl, I confess, I was watching YouTube while you were teaching Sunday school. I, I, but, and it, this thought came to me and I, I watched a YouTube video of her. And she talked about, this was so wonderful. Look it up. Um, she talked about how that, that God is fashioning us and... She, she went to a place from her childhood, which was a quarry, and she talked about how serene and still it was. And then she, she remembered from Scripture the command as they were building the, the temple in Kings there that they, that they not cut or polish any of the stones that they were using to build the temple. All that work was done in the quarry. All that work was done away. And you think of been building this temple and just placing the stones, putting them in place. And she used that analogy and she said, here we are on the earth. Here we are in the, in the, in the, you know, the jackhammers and the hammers and the chisels are going on us. But we're being formed in these beautiful stones for God's glory. We need to learn from other people about how they wrestled with the challenges that they faced. And we can see that, that God is with them and he is with us, no matter how big or how small our troubles are. We need God's people. We need to learn about others that wrestled in their times of challenge. 
and suffering. This text is a great reminder of really one of the central messages of this epistle, that when you face trials, and you will face them, don't be surprised, but know that God is in them. He is working in and through them. Our trials produce steadfastness. So lean on God in those dark hours. Establish your hearts. Fix your eyes on Christ, knowing that He is good, that He is working to accomplish His purposes in you, that you may be perfect and complete, as James says in chapter 1, lacking nothing. God is with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. He will not let you go. Amen. Let us pray.